A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. My guest today is Michael Krause. Michael is a former Marine captain and uh, foreign policy analyst, uh, an attorney. And what else am I missing, Michael? Uh, Mercenary. That was the one. Mercenary, yes. I, I take pride in that one. I like that you take pride in that. Most people, I think, would uh, not wear that label as a badge of honor because, you know, when you hear it in uh, these old period pieces, it's always like that guy who's kind of out for himself and not down with the country's cause. Of course. Well, mercenary has a negative connotation, obviously. Um, really there's good... a professional soldier, right? Basically, yes. That you're not affiliated with the uniform of a nation state military. You are... Uh, hired gun. Now, the problem with it is the vast majority of operations overseas involve what we refer to as contractors, but a contractor is basically a mercenary. Um, so, so your time in the Marines, how long were you there? And then where were you in the world? Five years active, seven years inactive, uh, Afghanistan, 07, 08. Um, and then I started working for the State Department in 10 through 12, and that was in Iraq, northern area, uh, up near Kurdistan. Well, actually, it was Kurdistan, out of, operating out of Erbil. Um, before that, right when I got out of the Marines, I did a stint as uh, a mercenary doing anti-piracy operations off the Horn of Africa in Somalia. And this is not uh, software piracy or music piracy. This is real piracy. <laughs> this was... 15 to 30-year-old Somali pirates armed with PKMs, AK-47s, and RPGs trying to take your ship. Wow. So, and, you know, I, when I first went over there, I was actually hoping it was going to be a little more Pirates of the Caribbean Johnny Depp, but uh, it was actually extremely boring. We only uh, we only got actually attacked once. Uh, a couple <laughs> warnings. That's the definition of boring. Well, you, you, the thing is, is when you're on those, because uh, we were on what were called uh, roll-on, roll-off ships, and these things I think were like forty to fifty thousand ton, you know, vessels that are seven to nine stories off the waterline, and it's just boring as hell wow. because you you fly into Cairo, you drive down to the Suez Canal, as the ship comes out of the Suez Canal, you go up to it with a little launch boat, you scurry up a ladder, and then you basically sail through the Red Sea around Yemen and into the Persian Gulf. And there's about four to five days where there's you're actually in the zone where pirates at that time could operate, given their, their mothership operations in the Indian Ocean. So there was always a threat. But for every nine ships that go through that area, only one has security on board. So if you're pirates, do you really want to fight? No. If I see someone that has weapons on a ship, I'm going to go back and attack the, the ship behind it because most likely that one's undefended. Wow. Yes. But that was all, you know, that was kind of a transitional phase for me. And 
you know, going back to just mercenaries and contractors in general, most of the bases in Iraq, most of the bases in Afghanistan, Djibouti, um, wherever you find U.S. military troops, there will be U.S. contractors. Um, take the Air Force. I worked for the company that was we were working in, Erbil, was called DynCorp, and they were kind of made famous by a human trafficking sex scandal that took place in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. But by the time I worked for them, they had cleaned up their act. But they were the largest Air Force maintenance contracting firm in the world, meaning that almost all the maintenance on almost all the aircraft in the U.S. Air Force inventory was worked on by their maintenance crews, not actual Air Force crews. The U.S. military would not work, would not be able to fight without contractors, a.k.a. mercenaries. And so why is that? Is that just um, kind of a specialization in training regimens and the kind of troops that they need to keep on? That's, all the that's part of it. That's part of it. Think of how technical some of these aircraft, uh, tanks, ships, you know, individual weapon systems on right. aircraft or ships. Think of how technical those are. That's what, Yeah, exactly. You actually need people with PhDs in, in engineering or uh, computers, uh, computer programming degrees to be able to come in and actually make these things work. Wow. And, you, and, and so for the military, it's very hard to be able to train someone to that level and then be able to retain them. So this kind of just works as a uh, civilian support force. Exactly. Civilian support force. But in the, the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, we you needed contractors that were actually doing some running and gunning and protecting and by running and gunning i mean protecting u.s personnel like state department officials what i was doing um the military was spread too thin actually doing combat operations seeking out the enemy to destroy them where our whole job was defend the people that were assigned to we don't want to get in a fight you don't sit there and fight through the objective we get shot at you fire back and then you put them in the suburbans and land cruisers or whatever we were operating with that day and get back to the base um all right great well that's i mean all that's insane and i'm sure we'll come back to some of that soon okay. um but obviously we wanted to talk a little bit about uh china in you know the context of coronavirus and maybe I guess maybe a good place to start might be some perspective on what our relationship with China has been over the last, say, what, 30 years, I feel like seems like the relevant timeline. And if, if you don't think so, please replace it with yours. OK. I with China, I think you're I think you're right. I think there's a 30 year timeline. Um Right now, I, I, we look. I think we look at a pre-Tiananmen Square, post-Tiananmen Square, uh, in, in terms of our relations with them, and then also from an economic dependency standpoint, probably the last fifteen to twenty years. And you know, and I and and here's my you know for, for your, everyone that's listening to this, I, I'm not one of these people. It's China is the enemy and, and, and things like that. China is an adversary. I personally have a love for the Chinese people. I, when college, I spent a semester, uh, I studied in China at the Southwest University of Political Science and Law, which is located in Chongqing in Sichuan province. I, you know, 
I would go down and make my own noodles down on the corner after class and things like that. Like I love the Chinese people. They're industrious. They're kind. They just happen to have a form of government that most in the West would not agree with. And they have a government that infringes on their civil liberties in a, in a manner that a lot of countries in the West can't even fathom. Um, so I say that as I have a lot of respect for the Chinese people, a love for them. But when it comes to the government, we do have to acknowledge that they are our adversary at this point. And, and I, there, I think last year, the year before, I did a segment on CNN where we were talking about um, the Russia-Chinese connection and how it was playing into Syria and things like that. And I made the comment that most people don't acknowledge it, but we are right now in the middle of Cold War 2.0. It's a different kind of Cold War, but we're there. And the Chinese are all for it. If you go back and you look at the past 10, 15 years of their, the literature that comes out of their, their West Points or their you know, naval bear Annapolises and things like that, they understand that they want to be the most dominant power in the Pacific. Right now, they're a player in the Pacific, but they're not the most dominant. Okay? We're still the most dominant. And in order for them to overtake us, there needs to be a conflict. And so all of their literature is pointed towards having a conflict in the South China Sea that lasts, whether it's 24 hours to two weeks, where the Chinese inflict enough damage on the United States where they can claim victory. Hmm. That's that's basically their goal from the military standpoint. Uh, that's what I think the you know, the, the plan, the People's Liberation Army, Navy, uh, everything is focused to that with their construction of new submarines, aircraft carriers, turning islands you know, coral reefs into islands and then turning those islands into unsinkable aircraft carriers, because that's basically what they've done to right, some of these islands. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, so they're, for the past 10 years, they've been very aggressive with force projection, building up from a green water navy, which is basically something that only operates in the littorals, you know, around the coastline, to now their whole plan and I think they've succeeded. They actually have a blue water navy. If you look at their uh, the numbers of ships that they have compared to, to other countries around the world, uh, they do have a blue water navy. Are they able to compete with the United States in terms of naval supremacy? Not even close. But here's the thing, and this is what everyone has to understand about U.S. military capabilities. Our military is all over the world. Okay, I mean, you're looking at we still got troops and operations going on in Afghanistan. We still have operations in Syria. Uh, you know, we've we had some Green Berets. We lost like two years in, uh, I think it was Mali or Niger. It was Niger. Africa. So we're doing uh, counter narcotic stuff in, in Central America, South Africa. Uh, we've got some things going on down there. There our military is spread thin where the Chinese military, especially the Navy and the Air Force, is localized. I think the Chinese have one base in Djibouti, which is like right down the street from one of our bases, which is interesting. <laughs> but their forces are all localized. Okay, So it's difficult to look at a confrontation, especially in the initial hours or days, when you look at the United States military whole, you have to look at what we have in the Pacific theater at the time on a normal or week, you know, daily or weekly basis. And we're pretty matched up. We have obviously more supercarriers, but, you know, our bases, our, our air bases, our naval assets, naval aviation assets in the area, 
you're outnumbered. And I think right now, now the, the Chinese have somewhere between 78 to 71 operational submarines and that's fast attack and, you know, ballistic missile subs. I'm not sure what we have in the Pacific, but I know we don't have that many. Yeah. So from a military standpoint, we're actually kind of on even par. Um, At least in terms of that location, right? In terms of numbers, yeah, in terms of the Pacific. And, you know, they the Chinese are always modernizing. When I first joined the Marine Corps, the, you know, the, everyone talked about the Chinese are 15 to 20 years behind us. And what that meant was technologically, how close are they to actually be a peer adversary? Okay. And what we've enjoyed for the past 20 or even actually you go back to the first Gulf War in 91, for 30 years, we have enjoyed the ability to fight enemies that are not our peer adversaries, meaning that they do not have the same type of technological uh, weapon systems that we do. You know, initially when we were fighting the, the Taliban in Afghanistan, they didn't have, you know, advanced night vision. They didn't have their own aircraft. Most of the fights that we got in involved small arms fire and, and small arms fires like, you know, rifles, machine guns, light mortars, RPGs and things like that. We weren't dealing with an enemy that had advanced artillery on the other side that could send the 155 millimeter shells 20 yards or, or, or 20 miles downrange. Um, you know, I always talk to the, to the vets of World War II and Korea and Vietnam, and they always say, oh, wow, you guys had it so hard fighting in the desert and those mountains and things. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, you guys were actually going up against individuals that had the same kind of weapons that you did. We go in as the U.S. military right now. We go in, we fight in Iraq or Afghanistan. We have a massive advantage over the enemy. And they know it. And if you look at the numbers, and going off on a tangent here, but you look at the numbers, like when I was fighting in the Korngal, the Pesh Valley of eastern Afghanistan, we'd kill 70, 75 of them. And they'd get maybe one, two of ours if they were lucky. And that was the cycle. It's not like they were in. It's not like we were losing battles or even losing large numbers of people. If you look at the numbers, we've been there for almost twenty years, and the numbers aren't that great compared to other American conflicts. Um, but anyways, I, I I running off on a tangent there. Oh, that stuff's we, interesting. Man. We can talk about Afghanistan later. If if anybody listening wants to get an idea of what I'm referring to in terms of like fighting in eastern Afghanistan, there's a great documentary called Restrepo. And it's done by a guy by the name of Sebastian Junger. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, he just wrote a book. I don't know if it's Tribe. called. Tribe. Tribe, that's what it was. Yeah, just talking about the uh, the brotherhood. Anyways, I met him. He, I was in that valley while they were filming. Um, so we actually did, we actually went on some of the same operations together. So it gives your viewers an understanding of what warfare was like then. And... In terms of terrain, imagine fighting in the Rocky Mountains with the Blue Ridge Mountain Appalachian foliage. So high, sharp rocks, but then you got trees everywhere. You may not see the enemy until you're 30 yards away from them kind of thing. Uh, so. And they have, you know, the knowledge of the territory. That's a huge advantage. Exactly. Well, and that, you know, the thing was, and this is what was crazy at the time that I was there, is... You didn't even really knew. You really didn't even know who you were fighting. They grouped everyone into what was called ACM, anti-coalition militia, and the coalition was the Afghan national government, the United States, and whatever NATO partners were operating there at the time. And 
we captured guys that spoke Russian. They were from Chechnya. We captured guys from Saudi Arabia. We captured guys from Southeast Asia, like Cambodian, Filipino, and stuff like that. And you're like, what are you guys doing here? Like, that's, we that's didn't even you know. Who, was exactly, yeah, exactly. Who, you know, it was funny is at the time I still knew a little bit of Russian because I'd studied there. And the, the, the captured Chechens started talking amongst themselves. And I guess they didn't expect anybody to know Russian. And I said, like, one line, like, you know, hello, my name is whatever. And they both shut up. But, <laughs> you know, but that was that was this. And that was back in 2008. So what were all of them doing there, though? Just fighting the United States as, wow. you know, the, the phrase that was coined the great, you know, we're the great Satan. So, well, that's lovely. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, that's you know, yeah. so that's my background. So, anyways, getting back to China, mm-hmm. you, you know, and and this is something obviously you you and I have uh, chatted about is the Hollywood influence in China or China's influence in the Hollywood. Um, you know, going taking going back in this thirty year span that we're really trying to talk about. So I don't really want to get into like most people listening know what Tiananmen Square is. They really don't want to get into that. Uh, we all know it was horrible. We know they covered it up. We know the official numbers that they released were not the official numbers. And I think the world did a really bad had a really bad response back then. But it was at the end of the Cold War, and it was the new global order that was taking place and whatever. But I think going back. 30, 20 years, there was this idea that what helped us bring down the Soviet Union was the importation of Americanism into their society. That the people saw how great the West was, how free the West was, how rich the West was. And and by West, I mean Western Europe at the time, you know, when the Berlin Wall fell down. And that infected the Soviet system, and also, and I think helped bring it down. So I think that there was this idea that if you can get into the Chinese market, have them embrace more of a capitalistic economic mindset, which they did, and bring in things like Hollywood movies, the NBA. Um, a big thing when I was in uh, China back then was Britney Spears. You know, like, bring, uh, you know, cultural Americana, where we, whether we agree with it or not, you know, but that would give them a taste of America and then soften the hardness of communism and either lead to massive reforms or it breaking apart altogether. Now, whether some studio exec or some business owner that wanted to put a manufacturing facility outside of Shanghai in 1998 or 2000, that was their main reasoning. I don't think it was, but it was there. It was there. But here's the thing. It's obvious at this point that American values or Western values cannot change China. And where we're going right now is there's a danger of Chinese values changing ours. And that's already begun happening. In fact, that's been happening for, what would you say, 10, 15 years longer? I mean, how how often do our... Uh, I mean, you know, you saw LeBron James basically backing down to China when uh, the general manager of the Houston Rockets had uh, kind of tweeted his support of the protesters in Hong Kong. You have our film and television industries, our entertainment industry, 
making edits to what is ostensibly American artistic product and doing that at the request of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so um, do you want to say something to that? Oh, yeah. I, and that's, that's, the, that's the thing. And that's going back to what I was saying is for decades, the media, politicians, business owners, league owners, everybody said that opening the Chinese market to U.S. products, sports, entertainment is going to lead to our values democratizing them, meaning bringing them closer to our political mindset of democracy and freedom. But it, 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 everything you're talking about, it turns out Chinese authoritarianism and censorship was imported back to the United States yeah. and has infected our corporations, our business leaders, and our artists. You know, one artist, actually, which we're talking about, like changing scripts and censorship, Quentin Tarantino was, was the only one that I know of in the past year or two that didn't bow down. Because remember, they wanted him to change once upon a time in Hollywood. Uh, they wanted him, him to change a couple scenes with Bruce Lee. Yes. And he said, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know, and, and look, whether you like his movies, which, by the way, I thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was phenomenal. Yeah, me too. Um, he, he's not, he, he's a true artist. He would not do that if the U.S. government came to him and said, hey, we, we want you to change this scene here, you know, because it makes one of our folk heroes look bad. And good for him. You know, me, you know, to get this out there, because, you know, when you start talking about, looking at China as an adversary, and then we're going to get into, you know, the coronavirus and everything and, and the massive blame that can be laid at their feet. People associate with you, oh, great, here we go. It's one of these right-winger Trump MAGA hat wearing. For the record, I've never worn a MAGA hat, nor will I. Um, but we're going to give people facts, okay? And the facts are the facts, whether you like Trump or whether you like Biden. Uh, so when it comes to China, you have to let people know that you're not aligned with the right when you talk about this, because people on the left will dismiss you. And anybody listening, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I consider myself a constitutionalist. I believe in more freedoms for more Americans. And, you know, have, having law degrees that doesn't make me the smartest person on the planet. Most of the people listening are probably going to be smarter than I am. But I understand that in this country, you have to look at rights through the lens of the Constitution, not your own personal religious beliefs. So politically, that's where I stand. So, you know, people understand that, hey, this isn't some guy that's just spouting off Trump talking points. Hey, every once in a while, the talking points that Trump administration puts out are actually true. And they make sense. That's one of the most toxic things about how everything has become polarized. Like things aren't wrong just because Trump said them, just like things aren't wrong because Democrats say them. Like things are only right or wrong because they map onto reality. Exactly. Um, and some of this is, I mean, we're talking about a, a communist party, a communist regime, and they use this stuff. They use American culture as propaganda against America. Is that is that an overstatement of the situation? No, it's not. If you look at especially the past 30 to 60 days, what has happened in the U.S. media 
Um, I know CBS had done some of it. Newsweek. Uh, we're starting to see some edit, uh, some opinion pieces in the Washington Post and New York Times that are mirroring this as well, where our media news sources are putting out the media news clips from the Communist Party. It's legit. Like they're talking points from the Chinese Communist Party that are put out. Our media grabs onto them and almost prints them or broadcasts them verbatim. Why? Because they think it hurts Trump. And that's ridiculous. In relation to that, the media is, I mean, there was people on Twitter going crazy today, one way or the other. They're arguing about whether or not America has the most deaths. And one side, the, the left side of this, or whatever you would say, the people who are, they believe in the line that the corporate media is telling them about all of this they actually believe that the united states has the most deaths and they are arguing that the united states has the most deaths and that the united states had the worst response to this now that makes no sense on its face because the united states does not have the most deaths per capita um and some of our allies do i mean i think belgium is in the worst situation right now they're certainly not our enemies um but uh china is not even reporting what has actually happened there. So the pretense that these stats as we know them right now are, are what's actually true, that China's had, what, like three or 4,000 deaths? We know that's not true. 100% we know it's not true. No, if you believe the Chinese data, you're the most naive person in the world. The problem is, for most Americans, they get their news from just a handful of sources. So if CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, or whoever uses those numbers, sure, okay, and puts them on a screen, people go, okay, well, I guess well, I got to believe those. those. Those are the right. Those are the right numbers. No one, I don't think anybody, any of the officials in China, because I think the, the officials that actually did know the right number have probably been sent off to the gulag or executed. Okay, like they that's did not some a joke, of their doctors. The so people, are no, gonna, it's not. That's, People are going to think that's an extreme statement for you if they're not familiar with how this stuff works. So can you take a second on that? Okay, so China is a... It, the problem that's happened in the past, and it really hasn't even been the past decade, it's only been about the past four to six years, there's been this romanticization of socialism and communism, okay, especially on the left. Communism is one party. Right? It is not a democracy. And people argue, oh, well, people were elected to the local Politburo and whatever. No, it's just an oligarchy. Whoever they wanted to be in that position from the local community or on the Politburo, um, which was basically, the, 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 I guess, the Congress, you could call it, depending on the, the socialist system or the communist system. And those people ran basically unopposed. And they could do whatever they wanted with your life. Okay. Um, and so when it comes to crossing the line against the communists in China, they will make you disappear. You will. And that's what happened. There were doctors. OK, early on that raised the alarm and they're missing. Like I read the articles in November, December and January, back when the media actually gave a damn about this stuff. Doctors are missing because they raised the alarm or they said that the official Chinese numbers weren't right and the government made them disappear. All right. That's that's where we're at. Um, so it's difficult for me as being a Western man, you know, Western world 
listening to any data that comes out of China and say, okay, that's factual. And what is, aren't they estimating now, there was an article in Foreign Policy this week that I think that we both talked about. Um, they believe that it could be up to 640,000 oh, cases that they've covered, right? Yeah, exactly. That was that was the new number that came out. I don't think that, that that's even accurate. I, what I've heard from uh, friends in Washington, a friend who works in the administration, another one works at one of the letter agencies, they believe that any no- official number out of China could be anywhere between three to ten times what it really is. So on the low end, we're looking at 600,000. It's probably closer to 1.8 to 2 million. That's kind of mind-blowing. And then their death numbers would obviously be in relation to that overall statistic. I mean, yeah, it's not. It's I, the, the takeaway is it's not even close. And so there, and it's not like our media is totally ignorant to this. There's no way to believe that the media has absolutely no idea what's happening in China. They they do have every reason to believe that those numbers aren't correct, but then they still repeat those numbers as if they are and then shift the narrative in accordance to those numbers. That makes no sense to me. Am I am I crazy here? No, that's that's what's taking place and I believe that it is politics. Early on in January February. There were still major news organizations, Vox, ABC, uh, Washington Post, New York Times, had articles about how the flu's worse than coronavirus. The only thing that's spreading faster than coronavirus is the fear of it. Right. Don't be afraid of coronavirus. It's not going to be a pandemic. Because at that time was around when Trump stopped travel from China. Remember, I think it was January 30th, around that time. And the narrative being pushed out was he only did this because he's a racist. Okay. And so that's when you saw this swell of all these posts about how it's not going to be that bad. Then people realized, okay, it's here. And Trump has actually got a task force on this and he's doing press every day about it. Wait a minute, time to switch it. And you can actually see within like a one to uh, two week period, how the media stories completely flipped we weren't prepared yeah exactly it, it, it's going to kill millions of people so and, and that's what's frustrating for i think a lot of people i know joe rogan has talked about this uh almost every podcast now about where there's nowhere to actually go and get facts the average american out there that is successful in what they do you know might have a family these people are intelligent individuals you can give them a a set of data points and they can make an analysis out of it and come to a reasonable conclusion Mm -hmm. but where do we find that information i know for myself i have to go to seven or eight different sources now from the bbc to fox to financial times to papers in the uk uh you know and then maybe occasionally a cnn or msnbc just to get what exactly is going on here because most of it is opinion and when it comes back to those stories that we were talking about and when the media made a switch, people need to understand, and I stand by this 100%. Most journalists in this country are not true journalists. They are political activists. Right. And I say that for both sides. Sure. Granted, most of, our, most of our media is liberal. The majority of the U.S. media is liberal. So obviously there's a lean 
to one side. But most journalists, regardless of what their political leanings are, are activists, not journalists first. Well, the other the the real dismaying thing about that is that it seems to me that the media has completely um, relinquished their responsibility in terms of presenting objective facts because they have totally taken up with the notion that there is nothing more important than getting Trump out of office. They believe Trump is an existential crisis to the to the United States. And listen, whether or not that's true, that doesn't absolve them from filtering everything through that point of view and that perspective while it can be helpful to look through it like yes maybe uh maybe trump is extremely dangerous i'm totally open to that to that possibility but that's not helped by a media misinforming and disinforming the public in service of telling us that trump's evil like it's it's almost insulting to the uh you know, to the American conscience as a whole, that we cannot be trusted to have uh, the, you know, anything resembling an objective story because then it's possible that we on our own might consider that what Trump did is not that bad and that's antithetical to their goal. So they have to filter through, filter everything through Trump is that bad and then we can work from there. And that's just, that's just dangerous on its face. Well, Chris, you know, I mean, what you just described is 100% what is taking place. What you have to understand is they have a narrative and they work back from that. Yes. Trump is bad. Oh, some new point of information. How do I bring that in back to my narrative? we got to spin this. And if you watch, and I watch, not every day, but I watch the presidential briefings. Yeah, I've watched quite a few of them as well. The questions... That American journalists ask in the middle of one of the greatest crises the United States has ever been in, okay, the worst pandemic in 100 years, the questions that they ask are absolutely mind-boggling. To this day, we don't know who the someone was that asked the Asian reporter about the, you know, Kung flu. Even <laughs> Trump, like, who said that? That was a big deal for like two weeks in the media. Some reporter said, someone in the administration asked me, and I'm an Asian person, about the Kung flu, and I think that's racist. No one was ever named. But those are the articles that are being written. Right. You had the uh, CBS reporter, I can't remember her name, she's of Asian descent, asked Trump the other day about something, and Trump said, ask China. And then she pulls her mask down to right. say, you know, why, yeah, why, why are you asking me? Ask me? Yeah. Like, is it because I'm Asian? Well, no. He's been yet he's been ranting about China for the entirety of the press conference to reporters of all backgrounds. You know, he's been doing it for months. So, of course, it's not he's not saying it to you because you're Asian. It doesn't make any sense. And that that was a huge uh, media drama. And one thing that's kind of perplexing to me is that's the exact side who doesn't who doesn't take a second to believe that Russia was trying to use American divided political culture against America uh, throughout the 2016 presidential campaign. They don't have any problem admitting that that's what Russia was trying to do. But now that we see China doing it on a day-to-day basis, right out in the open, it's not hard to tell what it is. But now this can't be happening because, because we don't want to say because, you know, China being bad helps Trump in this context. Russia being bad hurts Trump in that context. So that's no problem to believe. It's 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 a uh, it's an intentional skewing 
of all the facts to whichever the anti-Trump side is. But that's, and as we've said, that's the way that it's been for the past, you know, three going on four years now. Yeah. You know, and, and I always look at uh, Joe Scarborough, and, and yeah. I'll admit, I actually prefer the MSNBC morning program because they really do delve into the politics and what's yeah. going on, you know, as opposed to like the Fox News you know, here's a puppy and you know, things like that. I, 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 you know, I understand there's a need for that kind of programming, but that's not there for me. But if you look at Joe Scarborough, he had Trump on in 2015 and 16, gave him tens of millions of dollars worth of free media. OK, yeah. they loved him because they wanted him to get the nomination because they thought that if Trump had the nomination, Hillary would win hands down. That's what all the media thought. So they trumped them up. And they weren't, yeah, and they weren't having any problems saying that either. I mean, I remember Jonathan Chait writing about how uh, it would be a good thing if Trump was the nominee because then Hillary was sure to win. In fact, I said the same damn thing myself uh, because that's what I wanted. And I, I wanted it to be true that Trump was as weak as I thought he was at the beginning of those campaigns and as ridiculous as I thought he was. And I imagined the rest of the country would see that the same way and that it would just be, you know, election over at that point. I believed that when a page of his tax returns from like 95 got released, he was going to get he was going to get killed. I believed that when the Access Hollywood tape came out, the fact that he won proved all of that wrong. And to hold on to any of that in the face of a Trump victory immediately became silly to me. It's like, okay, wow, I was really, really wrong about what I think this country thinks of him, who this guy is, how effective his tactics are. All of that has become clear to me that my prior beliefs in that 20,000, the, the 2016 campaign, those were wrong. All right. And after that, you have to get rid of all that and then start rebuilding the way you see things according to what the reality is. And I don't think our media has done that. I don't think the populace has done that. I think that, you know, we we can talk about Trump derangement syndrome. I think that's a clunky way to talk about it. But people really have changed their mode of thinking in a way that makes them believe whatever puts Trump in the wrong. That's what they believe. They will they will backfill that. They're not even they're not even taking the logical steps based on the information presented. They are starting with with the the end product which is Trump is bad and then they are supporting that after the fact. Yeah, they're working backwards because of the narrative. Yes. Trump was not my first Trump was not my first pick. Okay, and having worked in the State Department during the time that Hillary was the Secretary of State, there was not a chance in hell that I could ever vote for. Okay, Okay. I don't think anybody that ever worked for the State Department that wasn't in the top levels of the uh, uh, of the organization actually liked her. Okay, so for me, it came down to who are the Republicans going to put up? Can you can you actually explain that a little bit? Because, you know, it's very easy for someone listening to this to be like, oh, he just hates Hillary. Um, because that's how we, that's apparently how we process things now. But, but what, what, what would you say the, the mood and the point of view uh, from the state department, what, what was that at the time? The, 
the people that worked for the State Department, like myself, that were protecting the personnel, nobody liked her. Um, the people that worked were actually State Department personnel, the people that had their graduate degrees, because this is before I, I went to law school and things. I just had a BA at the time. But your doctors, your lawyers, the people that had uh, graduate degrees in foreign policy, those people loved her. But there was a reason for it is most of the people in the organization, and I think most of the federal workforce, leans liberal. So they, they liked Obama, the Obama-Hillary foreign policy of lead from behind. Um, you know, I'm always, I've always been a big foreign policy junkie in diplomacy. So I studied, obviously, the Obama administration with it because he was my commander in chief for two years. Um, but I did not like I did not like the way that we were conducting foreign policy under the Obama administration. And, and you know, we can get into like talking about the Iran deal to, you know, uh, allowing Russia to take over Crimea. Um, not that there was much that we could have done there to, I think, his biggest geopolitical mistake of his entire eight years. Okay, Michael, we just got cut off for a second. I think you were saying um, Obama's biggest geopolitical mistake in the eight years he was in office? Was Syria, without a doubt. Syria. I, I don't think there's an objective individual out there that can look at Obama's uh, view and policies that he implemented in, in terms of uh, around the conflict in Syria. Uh, he he failed. There's there's no other way to to say it. Can you provide a little context for that? So he what he did was the he basically set up a red line where it was if this is crossed, the United States is going into action. Yes, he set up the red line when the Syrian civil war, which was uh, part of the the, the grander. Uh, Arab Spring is what they called it, from Tunisia all the way down through Egypt and, and other countries in the region. There was this new birth of independence and freedom movement, so to speak. Well, there were protests. There was a crackdown in Syria. It's part of the army split off um, and then was fighting the army that stayed loyal to Assad. And a civil war erupts. Then chemical weapons are used. So Obama says, don't do that. And we're going to bomb you because you did. All right. And there's like a week of back and forth going going on in the United States positioning ships and aircraft, even though we have a lot in the region already. And we don't do it. Why? Because Vladimir Putin comes in and saves the day and says, and I'm being sarcastic there, that I will broker a deal between the United States and Assad, who is allied with Putin and Russia. And they'll give up all of their chemical weapons and not have a chemical weapons program. Just please don't bomb them. And Obama backs down. And since then, gas has been used multiple times. Mm. And when there was gas that was used, Trump actually bombed them. Right. But Trump the actually big, uh, enforced the red line. Yeah. So but the other biggest problem was the refugees and everything that came with the conflict. The. The hundreds of thousands of people that have been displaced and the hundreds of thousands of people that have died, it's basically Yugoslavia, Bosnia-Herzegovina in the mid-90s. Okay, that's basically what it is. 
but it's in Syria and nobody, and I, you know, I've said this on CNN, there's some, there seems to be some type of reason in the West when there's atrocities that take place in Africa or the Middle East, whether it's a truck bomb in Somalia or, you know, this in Syria, most people in the West just really don't give a damn about the death numbers. Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but people do. We're also kind of told that all the conflict there is the fault of America in the first place. Well, yeah, but that's, that's one biased way to look at it. And obviously if, if you really want to delve into why we are dealing with what we're dealing with in the Middle East, we got to take it all the way back to the fall of the Ottoman Empire post-World War I. Mm-hmm. That's how far back you got to do it. When you have the declaration of war by Osama bin Laden against the United States, I think it was like a fax he sent in like 1997 or 1998, he mentions the fall of the Ottoman Empire and all that stuff. So... What took place back then is having a direct impact on what we're dealing with now in the Middle East. But anyways, back back to Syria. The not taking a tough stand against Assad and therefore allowing Putin to come in. Obama helped create or not, you know, you can't can't blame him completely for it, but he didn't stop the greatest humanitarian crisis so far of the 21st century and is there is there a realistic way he could have stopped this or was this kind of conflict always baked into the cake i think they could they could have stopped it back there to right yeah in his second term it could have stopped it i mean it would it would have been look it would have been and i say this as someone that has seen war i understand war i despise war but i also know that sometimes war is necessary that in the short term, this sharp, quick military operation is going to, down the road, save hundreds of thousands of lives. It's the argument that is always used against the bombing and the dropping of the uh, dropping the bomb on Hiroshima. Okay, yes, it is horrible that that many people died. It's also horrible that hundreds of thousands of people died in Nagasaki. But the bombs had not been used. The United States and Allied invasion of Japan would have resulted in millions of deaths, not just a couple hundred thousand. That's the way you have to look at it. So, yes, we Monday morning. Am I Monday morning quarterbacking President Obama? Yes, I am. It would have been smarter at the time to launch a strike and help the Syrian rebels remove Assad, even if we didn't really know who the Syrian rebels were because they were a group of like six different factions, all with uh, different desires and different goals. Maybe three of them were actually good. And three of the other ones are what we've been fighting in the middle East for 20 years. The, uh, fundamentalist Islamists, you don't know, but it would have been better to remove Assad and then allow, uh, one of these rebel groups to, to take over. And hopefully you'll be able to start some type of fledgling democracy. Because people don't understand, Syria is a dictatorship, and Syria has been a dictatorship for a very long time. Assad's father was the dictator before him. So that's what we're dealing with. And yes, that's what I think with the greatest, besides the Iran deal, that was Obama's greatest uh, foreign policy failure with Syria. Part of the story we got um, at that point was that it it was said that the Republicans tied 
Obama's hands and his ability to do that in terms of the powers that he had to enact war there. Um, that that doesn't play for you? No, not at all. Because Trump didn't consult with Congress when he bombed Syria. and That made Nancy Pelosi mad, but he just did it. He used the War Powers Act and, and, and the powers that are given to the executive branch to use military force. So, but how do you, how do you feel about that in context? I mean, that's not constitutionally, that's not what's supposed to happen. Congress should be authorizing the use of force. Uh, It's up to Congress to authorize war. War. And that's, there's, there's that, that gray area is, this is technically not a war. We haven't declared war on anybody since World War II. We never declared war in uh, North Vietnam. We never declared war on uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Hell, we didn't even declare war in North Korea and China during the Korean War. So it, are, are those military operations then in a way unconstitutional? I mean, and I'm not Some saying... Some people look at it that way. Yeah. Some people do. I don't look at it from that lens. I think current war powers uh, are correctly vested in the executive branch. The problem is when we get into whether being used in one way and they're not and not being used in another way or the change of administration they're used here but now this administration views them as illegal or uh you know goes you know goes above the previous administration's actions and things you know look at you know everyone got uh, got mad about uh George Bush and they were taking it far now back pre 2008 yeah. with his drone policy right you know using autonomous drones UAVs to surgically take out enemy targets Uh obama droned i don't know how many thousands of people his uh, actual drone strike operations far eclipsed george bush's right but you never hear about that now you know look mr president i agree with you 100 percent on your drone policy i you know where i if 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 Barack obama ever called me up when i was out of the marines and he's no longer my commander-in-chief and he said michael i need you for something i would say yes sir mr president Mm-hmm. Okay, he's president of the United States. And that's where, even though I disagreed with him politically, I respected him as a man and the office. And I think taking our conversation full circle back to how we began, there is a disregard for the office because they despise Trump so bad. Mm-hmm. You know, so anyways, so we, we, we can move on. I know we, we yeah, have a sure. lot, a lot of topics so, you want to talk about. Right, right, right. Um, but that almost kind of gets us back there because... The way that things are are influenced, it's basically we trust that Obama was was doing the right thing, regardless of whether or not he was stepping outside the bounds of the Constitution. Uh, obviously, other presidents have done that as well, including Donald Trump. Um, but that the further we drift away from a uh, an, a a Congress that has accountability weighing in on these decisions and moves toward an all-powerful executive i mean it's my view that that's just a dangerous road to go down and i guess you could say that we're already pretty well on the way down that road um but where does that leave us now uh with china because it's easy to imagine that america has always been all-powerful and always will be all-powerful and that these conflicts in the world are a result of our misbehavior um, and I'm not saying that there's nothing to that view, but it just doesn't really uh, map onto the world now 
Um, we, we actually do have enemies and adversaries and rivals in the world. They have goals that they are trying to achieve that are antithetical to the goals we're trying to achieve. And eventually that will result in some kind of conflict, whether it's economic, um, the way we've seen in China and, uh, you know, hopefully that doesn't get to be military, but these are still real conflicts that exist in the world. Like China is not our friend. It doesn't matter that we exchange money and, you know, free traders and, I don't, you know, globalists. I'm not trying to tie any judgment to the word globalist, although we can talk about that. Um, but but there's it seems to me that there's a certain naivete there in the fact that they are willing to that our, our public in general is willing to believe that these countries have our best interest at heart. And that's clearly not true. You know, this is all viewed through the lens of America as a colonialist power and the idea that we don't have any business uh, influencing the events in countries across the world. So so we, we come to China now and China is is it is it an overstatement to say that China is enacting colonialist policies right now? Yes, but it's a different type of. Uh, colonial project it's economic it's economic dependence back in the day you the british would send an army to africa and conquer some tribe and now that's part of the empire right. germans the germans the french everybody did did the same thing um now what the chinese have done is through the the belt and road um uh program and i know you're you're spun up on that and i know you have some good opinions on that through the Belt and Road, they've created this economic dependence of what were once former colonial treasures of other empires in Africa and Asia and things like that. They made them dependent on China for money and construction infrastructure projects. And you can argue, okay, this is just like the 50s, 60s, and 70s between the, the West and the East, you know, United States versus the Soviet Union and how... There were proxy wars and people were giving we were giving uh, international aid to countries in Africa. So was the Soviets because they wanted we were basically vying for their love. Which side of the Iron Curtain are you going to fall? Are you Warsaw Pact or are you NATO? And so they were basically we were giving out aid. And it's very similar to what China's doing. Problem is, back then, a lot of our aid was just straight up donations. The Chinese are saying, we'll do this infrastructure project and we'll give you. Uh, the option to have this really amazing giant loan that you're never going to be able to repay back. But we'll give that to you. Okay, now we're buddy buddies. That, that's, well, dude, I'm dumbing it down a, a great sure, amount. But that's basically what it is. So it is a form of economic colonialism. And they're expanding around the world, trying to uh, make themselves a power player in different regions of the world. Yeah, it's, just, yeah, it's, it's exactly what the, the Chinese want to be they want the 21st century to be what the 20th was for the united states they want this to be the 21st century belongs to china it's the chinese century 20th century is the american century the 21st is going to be the chinese century and that's that's what they're focusing on and that's what they're trying to do and that goes back to what we were talking about with their military capabilities and all their focus is on defeating the united states in a short sharp war in the south china sea and with their um, with their infrastructure build up in different countries, whether it's northern Italy, whether it's Iran, um, this is 
basically for their benefit. They're having the they're moving industries to these places. They're moving in infrastructure to these places so that they can eventually uh, reap the strategic and financial benefits of having their infrastructure in place there. Yes, is that accurate? Yes, it. Well, it's so, twofold. It's 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 right. having the that that benefit of the infrastructure project, the uh, the finance aspect with the loans. There's a benefit going back to China. Now, these other countries see the benefit of an infrastructure project, a new highway, a new railway, a new power plant. Um, and with the Chinese coming in and building all these things, they're also getting rights to minerals, other resources. They want the actual resources that the country has to offer. I mean, there's Chinese mining operations in Afghanistan. Mm. The United and States is the one that's actually Africa, trying to secure uh, the country. Yeah, in Africa, exactly. So the, oil the Chinese South are getting America, the financial right? benefit. So what? I said oil in South America. Exactly. Uh -huh. and, and you're seeing closer ties with Venezuela and, and, and things like that. So the, the Chinese know what they're doing, and they're reaping a benefit from this. And it is like the old colonial, uh, uh, colonial system where, yeah, you may bring in some infrastructure because you're the, the main country, you're the, but you're also taking all the natural resources. You own right. the natural resources. You're not giving it to the people. The Chinese are doing the same thing. So uh, when, when we talk about northern Italy or Iran, we're talking about more economically depressed parts of the world not to say that they're you know completely depressed but it's not the united states it's not germany uh it's not the uk or at least it wasn't the uk and so the way that they are trying to move into some of those um you know into more economic superpowers is through 5g yes uh huawei they were trying to set up the 5g infrastructure in the uk and the uk basically had approved that and i think now they've backed off that right Yes, right. but do you know why they backed off? Well, I mean, I don't know the exact reason now. My understanding was that we wanted them to back out of it because China would then have the uh, the infrastructure, the, the communications infrastructure would be Chinese, and then they could easily co-opt um, private communications between the UK and the rest of the world and gain an intelligence advantage there, if I understand correctly. Yes. That's it. And basically, because of that, we threatened that we would no longer share intelligence with them. With the UK. With the UK, which is like, our, it's basically like keeping a secret from your big brother that knows right. everything. We are and that so, close. And so but we threatened to withhold that. The UK is part of the, uh, the Five Eyes intelligence community, right? Can you explain what that is for a second? It's, it's basically a, uh, it's us, the UK, Australia... Canada, right? I think it's Canada as well. Um, we basically are very open to our intelligence sharing with those countries. What comes into any one of those countries tends to get filtered filtered around um, all of them. So think about like the Allied Intelligence Command during World War II. All the nations together, we had basically our own intelligence apparatus. It's very similar to that. So what they know, we know mostly. I would probably say that ninety to ninety-five percent of all intelligence is gathered between those countries gets shared with each other and i'm sure there's some guy that works at the nsa right now that's laughing his butt off because he's like oh it's actually only 30 percent. this guy doesn't know what he's talking about but that, <laughs> that that is what i would estimate it to be at so very close relationship so for us to threaten to cut that off showed the uk wow the americans are really serious about this and yes huawei is a threat 
It is a threat. When you have a foreign company building your communication infrastructure that's going to be used for the next 10 to 30 years, you're opening yourself up to a lot of espionage. Mm-hmm. And I, if you could go back at the heart of the Cold War, let's say 1980, okay, 1980, we, everybody's got missiles pointed at everybody, and you tell them, by the way, the Soviet Union is going to come into the United States and build our next generation telephone system. People would have run you out of town. Right. There is not a chance in hell that they would have allowed that. But we've allowed it up until, well, we allowed it up until a certain point. And now we're like, hey, wait a minute, we're raising the alarm. Sure. Uh, and other countries, you know, are starting to, to, to think about that as well. Look at Australia. There's the Chinese are threat threatening. Chinese are actually threatening Australia with a trade, the trade war, trade embargo, because the the Australians want an investigation into what happened in Wuhan province when the outbreak first started. So in turn, I just want to mention the 5G thing again so that we can be very clear about what we're talking about, because there is, you know, the 5G conspiracy theory that the towers are causing radiation and melting people's minds and that like the there there are even conspiracy theorists saying that the coronavirus was a result of 5g all this stuff we're not talking about any of that stuff like wiping all the conspiracy theories off the table the 5g is a problem because this is communication infrastructure that they have access to and that is against our national interest and it's against the other four countries. I think we forgot to mention New Zealand. So it's New Zealand, Australia, the UK, and Canada. Now, if it is impossible for us to run proper intelligence operations with our allies that we share intelligence with, if their channels of communication are compromised by a, uh, by a rival country. And that should be on its face pretty obvious. That is not a that that part is not at all a conspiracy. So when we're talking about 5G in the context of this conversation, it has absolutely nothing to do with those conspiracies. And we're talking about Huawei, which is like many tech companies in China, happy to steal intellectual property and patents from the United States and and other advanced nations who are creating products that they want to copy and replicate for their own benefit without having to pay the people who have created these things um obviously that's just bad practice you know in, in from our perspective regardless um but okay so you, you got right to the wuhan part and i would love to talk about that because there was a dossier that came out um the intelligence communities had studied this stuff and our intelligence community believed that there was a possibility that the virus had leaked from a lab in wuhan which is not the same as saying it was created there um, and the other countries in the Five Eyes Alliance did not take as bold a stance on that. Now, we can talk about the influence that China has in the region with uh, Australia and New Zealand. They are much closer physically. That presents a different problem to those nations who aren't the military and economic superpowers we are. Uh, and they also don't have the geographic issues that we have. Um, so to think that that could be influenced 
But I'm, I'm totally with, open to that possibility. With, with that, I mean, there is always the possibility that that influence is there. However, countries like the Australians, New Zealand, New Zealanders, Japan, uh, they fall under the protection of the United States nuclear umbrella, mm-hmm. what I like to call it. If someone attacked one of those countries, they are immediately at war with the United States. That, that, right. that, you know, now and probably 10, 20 years in the future, that is what would happen. So then those nations know that they have the protection of the United States. Um, but that's only in the instance of an actual military attack. Like China is able to exert all kind of influence that's that falls short of an actual military attack. Oh, of course. Yes. And that and we're seeing that right now. That's 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 what's going on with other countries like Australia. They're threatening in embargoes and things like that. Um, you know, economic pressure and and, and propaganda uh, campaigns that they've launched against the United States. You know, remember like it was two months ago they were talking about how the they were going out and saying that the the coronavirus uh, COVID nineteen was actually planted in China by the U.S. military. I mean, come on, who believes that? But that was what the Chinese were putting out. I'm sure seeing And that. some people in our media were actually reporting it. Hey, there's a possibility. Look, the people listening, there is only three possibilities when, when it comes to the origin of COVID-19, okay, which came out in November, maybe even late October in That's Wuhan. What, yeah, I, I think but, that they were saying that the American military uh, planted the virus in Wuhan when they were there on a, uh, I think a diplomatic mission or something in, on October 19th, I believe. Um, yeah, late 2019. This, so there's only three options that really happened. A guy ate a bat, got a virus. Mm-hmm. Chinese were developing a weapon. It got out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, okay, which is right down the street, basically, from the wet market. Or the Chinese were testing viruses because they're scared of another SARS from 2002 happening. So they're actively trying to protect their population and they're targeting viruses that aren't, that they haven't found yet, like in the human population, but they're found in the wild. They're testing on it and it accidentally gets out. Right now me, I'm torn between one and three, Mm -hmm. but I lean more towards three. I think it was an accidental release from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And it's interesting because people, for some reason, don't want it to be that. And, you know, I just want to know what the right answer is, because that has actual foreign policy implications. You know, if it was an accident in the wet market, that sucks and that's awful. And then we can talk about the wet markets, but that's not I don't I don't believe that's necessary. The only relevance to where it actually originated is how we respond, because the Wuhan Institute of Virology had there had already been reports that it was not exercising the proper safety standards. These reports came out in 2018. And now we sit here in 2020 trying to say that that couldn't have happened. I don't understand the motivation for saying that it couldn't. I mean, if the motivation is wanting to deescalate with China, fine. You know, I am totally of the viewpoint that we as citizens will not get a full story and probably should not get a full story because there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. It's funny that the media, you know, I've seen this a lot, that they are uh, downplaying all, all of these 
scenarios, if if it's because they don't want that conflict, that's a whole lot different than Donald Trump saying that Xi Jinping is his buddy. You know, he he's doing things in an actual setting of international relations. There's no uh, there's no reason why our media there's no reason to believe our media is operating on the same set of priors. Donald Trump has an entirely different job and whoever the American president is has an entirely different job than our media does. So for them to, for them to try to act like what they're doing is also foreign policy or when Donald Trump says it, he's being serious about his relationship with Xi Jinping. I don't understand how those things are so difficult to navigate for people. Like it can be, true that Donald Trump is trying to influence his relationship with them. And it can also be true that he doesn't really think Xi Jinping is his best friend. No, I, I, I agree. And that's one of the biggest, I, I, when it comes to Donald Trump's foreign policy, I agree with most of it. I don't think, um, that he thinks that he's best friends with Xi or, uh, Kim Jong-un. I think he does what he needs to do from a diplomatic standpoint. Uh, I really want this person to have that connection that Reagan and Gorbachev had. Those guys were adversaries, but they had a really good connection. Okay, when they met with each other, they actually got along. So maybe that's Trump's um, focus. I don't know, but you know, sometimes it irks me when he does give praise to Kim Jong Un or Xi. Oh, like, yeah. It, it, it's embarrassing. It, it's embarrassing. He could stop. Yeah, he could stop short of the effusive things he says. He could he could be more diplomatic, but he doesn't have that in his in his personal makeup, his constitution. Like that's not who Donald Trump is. And again, that presents a real danger for us. I don't like the fact that someone who has to have conversations on this level is such a careless, loose talker. I don't I don't appreciate that. That's not a good thing. I care primarily about results and I care about whether or not the American public has the right perspective on what's actually happening in the world. I will get, I agree. I will give you, this is my no holds bar, completely honest, Mike opinion of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. It is policy over personality. Mm -hmm. I want policy results. I don't care about your personality. Obama had a great personality. He was probably the greatest orator we've had in the 21st century. I didn't like his policies, at least most of them. I can't stand how Trump talks. Yeah. I can't stand a speak before you think mentality. But damn it, I like the guy's policies. You know, whether it's it's foreign policy or the economic policies. I mean, you know, being in L.A. and, and you know this is you you develop friends with if you're an outgoing person and you're doing well you go out and you meet people you're going to meet celebrities and you're going to become friends with celebrities and you start talking to them about politics you become friends with them you don't push them but you want to know what what they think and most of them i think all start out democrat or liberal because that's basically what everybody is in la supposedly especially in the industry and then they start getting taxed or you know this right gets taken away or this person does something and they don't agree with it. And before you know it, like I was asking a friend of mine who's, who's an influencer, you know, got tens of millions of followers on Instagram. It's where he makes his, his money. He's 
I said, what is the most important thing to you? And he said, well, it's policies. And for me personally, you know, who's has the lower taxes? And I said, congratulations, you're a Republican. You know, <laughs> started laughing because he's like, well, I guess so. I never really looked at it, but now I know, you know, and he'd been going off on like Joe Biden for a month. Like, what is going on? Why? Why? I think he was a Tulsi Gabbard fan like Joe Rogan. And it's like, why is this the person that's here? We, we, we could talk about a that on another podcast about how Joe Biden is clearly in cognitive decline and has early signs of dementia visible for everyone to see. We could go down that, that road because that is true. Um, but you know, it's going back to what we were talking about earlier. People just hate Trump so much that please give me someone other than him to vote for. And that's going to end up being Joe Biden. It's like we live in an alternate reality where we can imagine that Trump isn't president. You know, it's just a complete detachment from what's actually happening. Like, you don't have to like him. No one has to like him. But he's still the president. And unless you want to have a worse life, you should have some pull towards wanting what's best for America, whatever that is. And if Donald Trump is the one who accomplishes that, you know, again, you still don't have to like him. But just be happy that we are still where we are now. You know, saying that in a time of coronavirus is very upsetting to a lot of people. And I understand why, because Donald Trump's reaction to this situation has not been one of resolve and clear communication, uh, clear plans and goals. It's been kind of reacting to everything in the moment, as he often does. But it's not that there's no plan there. It's that whatever we are seeing gets filtered through our political agenda first, and then it becomes impossible to actually get down to what he's really doing or what he should be doing. So, so let's get to this. I want to, what do you think the next few months or few years looks like with our relationship to China? I mean, I know Apple is talking about moving 20% of their manufacturing that's currently in China into India. They've talked about Brazil. There are places around the world that are less hostile to American interests where we could be doing business um, if we are able to uncouple from China in some way. I agree 100% with decoupling. And I think that you're going to see the relationship that Trump has established with Modi in India. Mm-hmm. Um, let's be honest. Trump is a narcissist. He loves praise. Yep. When he went into those giant like cricket and soccer stadiums in India and, and got to speak to that many people, he loved that. Okay, mm-hmm. I guarantee you he is all on course to focus on getting the United States closer to India, which is a good thing. And something that I never really understood during the Cold War is that India, or at least for part of it, was aligned with the Soviet Union. Very strange. But I would love to see the United States have a closer relationship with India. And through that, also more manufacturing there. Because... Um, if you look at economic trends, if India has a similar increase in middle class like China did during their growth, there's going to be anywhere between 250 to 400 million new people being added to the middle class in India. Mm, which okay? creates new Exactly. Okay. New markets for everybody. Everybody's lives are better. So with that, I think we're going to see in, in the short term, there's not going to be too much aggression, I don't think or tweaking around of trade uh, with China by Trump, uh, at least until coronavirus, we've gotten a complete lid on it and things are back to normal. Uh, Trump deep down wants trade deals with China. 
he really doesn't want them to be an adversary. I think that's why he lavishes uh, Xi with praise all the time. Is he wants those trade deals because he knows, and I think he knew going into this year, the best way for him to win re-election is for the economy to improve. Now, that's very difficult, and, and you know this, and anybody with an objective eye would know this. Going into coronavirus in February, we had the greatest economy that the United States has arguably ever had. Okay, unemployment was down to levels since like 1969. The last time we had this few people unemployed was right before we landed on the moon. Okay, it's a long time ago. So things were good. And then things changed. Okay. And now that the economy is bad, because we, we have to agree to this, the economy is really bad right now. We're sure. somewhere between 14 to 16% unemployment. Uh, 36 million people, 36 million new people have been unemployed due to this. Exactly. 36 that was like the most recent number. So it's increasing every day. Yes. And so we have, by combating the coronavirus, which we can get into that talking about what we, yeah, let's, yeah, let's we need to do. But we have created a economic depression on ourselves. Okay. The, the federal government, state governments, local governments, especially when we get into L.A. Uh, about what the local governments are doing, basically shut down economies. Yes. And it's never happened, ever. So we're in uncharted territory. So, you know, finishing up with Trump, that was the only thing that was going to stop Trump was an economic nosedive. Okay, and everybody knew it. Well, guess what? We got an economic nosedive now. And we don't know what that recovery is going to look like, even though his poll numbers aren't too bad. It's up for grabs. It may come down to who Biden picks for his VP, but there's a good, there is a 50 50 chance Trump loses mm-hmm. in November. So, anyway, so wrap, wrapping that with a bow and putting it off to the side, getting to our response from a national level, a state level, and a local level, specifically in Los Angeles, uh, how those different entities took on the challenge of coronavirus and what they did uh, well what, and, and what they, you know, turned into an absolute disaster like New York and uh, with the nursing homes and things like that. Right. So I'd like to hear your, your view on what, what did the federal government, individual state governments and the local governments, which ones do you think did the best and which ones do you think did the worst? Well, I have like a, uh, I've been considering that quite a lot and I have kind of, um, a blame list and I don't see Trump higher than four on that. I think the biggest party to blame is the American corporate media. Um, I think after that we can select individual governors and mayors like Cuomo and de Blasio. I think that, uh, Gavin Newsom has done a terrible job. I think that Eric Garcetti and the director of public health here, Barbara Ferrer, have done a terrible job. I think Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan has done a terrible job. And the reason that they've done terrible jobs is because we have the community of people in this country with college degrees, et cetera, who have not necessarily had any real world experience in anything. They haven't run businesses. They haven't been responsible for employees. Uh, They don't even have uh, hands-on skill per se. Um, these are people who have studied particular subjects and specializations to an extent that's probably unnecessary for functional knowledge and almost anything. No, obviously this 
excludes people like Dr. Fauci and other medical people, but it does include the uh, epidemiologists and the economists, people who have been projecting what is going to happen in these situations. And, you know, we mentioned, uh, you know, the shutdown of an economy as as being something that hasn't happened before. That's a That's a critical part of the conversation because we are... The, the you know the the public the central narrative is that what is happening right now is that we are at the hands of a new virus and that this is a uh, totally um, uncharted territory and I don't think that that's true I think on its face that that's wrong because the world has had pandemics before so a new disease in our society is not a uh, yes it is a novel coronavirus it is not a novel event shutting down the entire economy is a novel event you know the atlantic a few weeks ago described georgia's reopening as an experiment in human sacrifice three weeks later now that georgia has been open for three weeks none of that has played out we are however in the middle of an experiment in human suffering by closing down the economy and there's there's no way that someone can can realistically argue that this was our only option that it, I don't even see how you can argue that it's our best option. Anthony Fauci said it was our best option way too late because of course we you know we now know that the virus was here in late December. So we've lived for 3 or 4 months in this country with coronavirus in our presence and it had no effect to that point. Now, my theory is and you know, I think that this theory maps onto reality really well. Um, there's an article in Bloomberg for anyone who wants to see it. It's called China will rack up three billion trips during world's biggest human migration. Now, the timeline on that migration was late January to the middle of February, three billion trips. And, uh, you know, the way that's measured, if I fly, I've said this on another podcast already, but if I fly from Los Angeles to New York and I connect in Atlanta, that's two trips. So three billion trips is going to be divided up by however many millions of people. But let's say each person takes four trips, two there, two back. So now we're talking about 750 million people moving throughout the world from the hotspot to the rest of the world, 750 million people in planes and trains spreading this disease in enclosed areas. And at one point, and by the way, all of these people are morally blameless. Like, I don't take... Uh, I'm not morally blameful for spreading a cold I don't know I have to another person that I share a drink with at a party. Like, that's not, that's not me killing someone, okay? So there's nothing about the Chinese people or their migration that I'm saying is bad. I'm not saying it shouldn't happen. I'm, I think it's wonderful that their country has this thing where they all travel back home to celebrate the new year, and then they return to the places around the world where they live. I think that's a beautiful thing that modern humanity allows. That is wonderful. That allows cultures to move and spread and connect with one another. I love all that. But as a purely practical matter, the number of people moving from that location, which was the hotspot of coronavirus, throughout the rest of the world, and then three weeks and four weeks later, we start seeing the deaths from coronavirus, which we know has a 25 to 40 day window. That's that's, you know, some people die earlier. Some people die longer. It's been up to like, I think, 56 days. But that's that's the the bullseye right there. You know, when people come back to the United States through Europe on on at the end of February, having potentially just gotten the 
coronavirus, and now we have basically a disease bomb throughout the world. And again, I know when I say bomb, it sounds like there's intentionality there. That's not what I mean. I just mean this is a super spreader event where now whatever channels the virus was in before, now it's in so many more of them. And then what we see is this huge bloom of, of viral spread. That doesn't surprise me at all. 92% of the country's coronavirus cases were directly through New York, that same strand of the virus. They know this. So, the, you know, when something like that happens, we can see that people are carrying the disease from one location to their final location. And to think that that, that, that chain of events didn't start in China at that point seems silly to me. You know, so... They're like, well, you know, if the disease was really this transmissible and really this deadly, why didn't we see it before? Well, because it didn't hit vulnerable communities until now. It didn't get into nursing homes back then. And if it did, it was in small numbers and we didn't have a name for this. We called it the flu and we chalked it up as that. You know, now even the, the governor of Colorado today is talking about how these deaths are not being counted properly. They are revising the CDC's numbers down because they know that coronavirus didn't kill those people. Now, that's just a real thing that's happening in the world, and that is totally um, in opposition to the narrative that people have gotten this far. And for the life of me, I can't understand why people are so um, reluctant to shift the narrative as the facts change. And, you know, I've been saying the same things for seven weeks, so people could say that I haven't shifted my narrative. But the truth is, there hasn't been any reason for me to shift my narrative, because I've had this theory, and I haven't seen anything that disproves this. I've only seen incoming information that proves it more. Every time the timeline of the initial spread in America gets pushed back, then we know that what we believed about this was not correct at the beginning. I mean, as, as a culture and the media and our government, we know that the lockdown when it was imposed was already well too late and makes no sense. There's no evidence right now that the lockdowns have been effective other than you know, people saying, well, you know, of course, if people are less in contact, the virus will spread less. It's like, well, yeah, if one of those people has the virus, like there's no threat to me if I don't have the virus going into a room of 200 people that don't have the virus. None of us are going to get the virus because none of us have it. Like that's not how like viruses don't just magically teleport to new places where people gather. I mean, this is it's it's so basic, but we're not having the conversation on that level. Anyway, I'm ranting now, dude. Uh, we no, get, this is I good. No, I didn't even get to this. I didn't even get to the state parts. But okay, let me let me wrap this up because I this is what I think about what the states have done. I think that the states were guided by um, information that they are these that these people by their own constitution. I've I did a podcast where I call this collection of people theorists, and this has no designation to which party they're in. Although I think that the you know progressive liberal mindset is more in line with that and it makes sense in their view of politics as a whole uh their uh kind of more accepting views toward uh systematic controls like socialism and communism they think that these things are the best ways to govern people and run a society because the things they study say that that they're that way you know and right now we're we're living in the result of that mindset. We are, again, enduring an experiment in humanity right now. We have all been put into an experiment where the lockdown is what we're supposed to endure, and nothing like this has ever happened. It was theoretical at, the, at its 
base. And so we have somebody like Gavin Newsom, who is very much a California Democrat. And, you know, again, that's not necessarily a pejorative. It's a certain mode of thinking that is easily exploitable in a situation that is simultaneously so important and so unusual. You know, when they decide that we need X number of beds based on a model that is has now proven fantastically wrong, and now we have 10% of hospital and emergency room capacity in Los Angeles being taken up, and we have empty hospitals and empty doctor's offices, that was not the intention. You know, we are bankrupting hospitals now because of that reliance on these models. So you make those decisions at the beginning, and you take... You take this massive decisive action. And then how does a politician pull back from that? See, I don't see how someone like Gavin Newsom can say after a couple weeks, he wasn't going to be able to say, well, you know, it looks like we've preserved hospital capacity. And so what we would like to do is tell you people that if you are in contact with older folks, you need to take extreme precaution. If you're someone who cares for them, you need to take extreme precaution. If you are one of those people, you need to take extreme precaution. But we are at a point right now where we know if people do get sick, they're going to have the care they need. And then the rest of society has to go back to work and continue. And see, when we're talking about American sacrifice and viewing it through the lens of whether or not somebody's wearing a mask, I think that that's got it all wrong. The sacrifice is that the rest of us go back to work and try to make this economy function as well as it can so that we have the resources to take care of people that actually do get sick, so that we have the resources to fund vaccines, so that we have the resources to make sure that hospitals don't run out of supplies on any level. And instead, what we've done is we've gotten the, the worst case in both scenarios. We haven't stopped anybody from dying on one hand. In fact, we've increased it by you know people like Governor Cuomo putting sick people into nursing homes where we know that these problems happen. At the same time, we have there's, Gavin Newsom. There's a, there's, a big, there's a big scandal there. And, and it's not being covered. It, the first article not. came out today. I mean, you know, there have been little articles here and there, but there has never been like a scathing takedown of what uh, Cuomo and de Blasio have been doing. And, you know, people are like, how do these people get elected? Well, it's like, it's, it's you, stupid. You're the one who's getting these people elected because you're the media. You're telling other, you know, high-minded people how they're supposed to vote. And those people are so used to trusting, quote-unquote, experts and trusting their side of the, you know, political divide that there's no questioning there. All of our moral and intellectual and political responsibility and thought has been delegated onto experts and, and politicians that happen to wear blue. And that is a terrible, terrible place for us to be. I think I just ranted for 20 minutes. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It was good. Um, what, what people need to ask, there's only one question we need to ask right now. When did flattening the curve turn into finding the cure? Okay. Yeah. The lockdowns were meant to lower the curve. And by the curve, I mean the models that showed that we were going to have 1 million to 2 million deaths in the United States. Okay. So lowering the curve in the initial wave of this thing somehow was stopped and now we can't open up until we have a vaccine or cure. That's ridiculous. We lowered the curve. We allowed the U.S. healthcare system um, to not be overwhelmed. All right. So we're spreading out the cases over time rather than a huge spike where, as you said, we don't have the resources to treat. We can treat 100. Let's say we can treat 10,000 people a day in hospitals across the country. Okay. We can continue to do that for months. 
But if we hadn't had a quick little initial lockdown, which I argue should only have been 30 days, we may have had a, we may have seen a huge spike. I don't think it would have been as high as those initial imperial studies out of England, the ones that showed the 1 million to 2 million deaths. I don't think it ever would have gotten that high. But there was been wrong about everything forever. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying he's incompetent in his job. I'm saying that his job comes with enough uh, unknown variables that that number not only can't be deemed the accurate thing that will happen, then we have a media that that takes only the high number in that range. They'll say coronavirus could kill up to 2 mil, 2.2 million people in the United States. Well, what's the low end of his model say? You know, why didn't we get that? I don't know what it says, at least not but from the media. That, but there's the thing that didn't fit into the narrative. Exactly. That's why. That's why I didn't go anywhere. The and I, I, I people ask me this all the time, and I, I, I tell them that this is my point of view with where we are and how we should continue to uh, fight the virus. It's about mitigating risk, people. Okay. It's not all one or the other. We live in the gray. Okay. If you look at the numbers that are coming out of California, I think they still have less than 3,000 deaths in a state with 40 million people. Those numbers are unbelievably small, especially if you look at like New York and, and all the, you know, the mess ups that they had. But the lockdown, the current lockdown in keeping almost 40 percent of L.A. unemployed or not working or not working at full capacity, that is insane. If you're looking at the data. I'm constantly told that we have to look at science for everything. I'm all for that, but I'm always told by the left when it comes to like climate change, look at the data, look at the data. Here's the data, okay? The continued lockdowns that are being enforced by Mayor Garcetti and by Governor Newsom, there is no justification based on the data. The only reason that you want to continue or support them with that is because of politics. That's all it is. It comes down, that's it. It's politics. And guess what? Sometimes you vote for people and you may like that person, but they implement a bad policy. That happens all the time. Yes. That's where we're at. And the problem is, you know, now being so divided along partisan lines, it's like, well, I can't actually even hold Gavin Newsom accountable for that because me holding him accountable would give the governorship to a Republican and we can't have that. It's like, wait, what are you talking about? Of course we can have that because the guy who's in there now just ruined our economy. I mean, what what do you need a governor for if if the guy that you want does the worst thing that can happen? You know, well, in California, God, I love it, especially Southern California, Los Angeles. For anybody that hasn't lived there, it's just a wonderful place. It's got such a great energy and, and wonderful people. And what I have found is while these people tend to go to the polls and pull the lever or press the button or whatever for Democrats, when you actually get to know them and you actually start start talking about policies and what's important to them, as I I said earlier about my, my friend that basically had the epiphany that he's a Republican now, most people that I've met out there are pretty moderate. Okay, their biggest stick, their biggest sticking points were gay rights um, you know, and uh, abortion rights. And even then, most of my friends that are pro abortion rights are not, you know, up until the time of birth. They're like, well, there should be a limitation. And the Supreme Court, we, you know, the Supreme Court has actually said the same thing. So that's what we're living under right now. But those people 
tend to be in the middle. And if they were given, I think, fair media, objective media, and not spoon-fed a narrative from their side, I think you would find more would be willing to actually pull the lever for a Republican and say, hey, let's give this a shot. Now, I say that as someone that hates the binary choice that we have. I hate that the greatest country in the history of man only has two political parties to choose from. I've always said this. We're only one party away from communism. Okay? I don't like that. Now, people will argue, well, no, Mike, there's libertarians. Yeah, give me a, a, a viable libertarian. Yeah, I but mean, the United Justin, States, Justin Amash just dropped out yesterday. Yeah, what was he in for a week? He just wasted a bunch of donor money. That was it. Yeah. And, mine. But if there was ever going to be a viable third party that could somehow split, shave off some Democrats and shave off some Republicans, and maybe have enough people in a certain geographical area to uh, get someone to Congress, because you don't just run a third party for president. You slowly build up the party like they did back in the day, is Southern California. I think the people there open-minded enough, if they're given the truth, they're given the right data, that they will say, okay, I'm going to, this is what I believe. This, these guys are not extremists right or left. They're right in the middle. Maybe it's more uh, conservative when it comes to economic things and foreign policy, but a little more liberal when it comes to social issues. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and I say that as someone that uh, I was pro-gay marriage before even Obama was. Okay, because like I said when we first started, so I look at new. yeah, I look at I look everything from the view of, of of the Constitution. So I want, as as I always say, more rights for more Americans. So that's basically where my policy is going to be. And I think the, the the problem now is even though gay marriage is the law of the land, okay, the Supreme Court is not going to rule against Obergefell, okay, which was the case that gave uh, basically made uh, gay marriage legal in all fifty states. That's not going away. That's that's a, a moot policy now. There is nothing that is going to change with that. So if you're someone that's on the left and your thing is gay rights, there's voting for a Republican is not going to change those rights for anybody. Now, I'm not advocating for, for people. Because I, I say, look, as I've said, policy over personality. I focus on the individual. I have voted for Democrats in my life up and down the ballot from the national level down to the local. Uh, and I've done for Republicans. Um, people don't need to just say I'm voting for one part or the other. Okay, you do have to focus on the individual because both parties have horrible candidates and, and people that that end up being horrible in in office. Look at Katie Hill. Okay, was sleeping with her with her staffers. You know that's why she resigned. She didn't resign because of revenge porn, which I thought was wrong that someone did put that out there, but. She resigned because she there was ethics violations that congressmen can't do. And she did those, so she left. And now a Republican won in L.A. County in the special election this past week. A Republican won in L.A. County taking over Hill's old seat. Now, it's a special election, so there's going to be an election for that seat in come November. Um, but it's the first time since 1998 that a district flipped blue to red mm-hmm. okay now i'm not saying that's a trend to california but what i'm saying is the people that i know okay in los angeles tend to be very open-minded and there could be an opportunity for a change in how uh congress looks in terms of the california delegation well one would hope because you know to me 
you know, I love California. I really do. I've been here for 17 and a half years and I've constantly voted Democrat my whole life. And, um, the last, I don't know, four or five, six years, whatever it's been, there's been a noticeable, there's been two noticeable shifts. One is how, well, not this, this is not necessarily a shift. It's kind of, it's just getting worse on the downhill slope. Like one party governance is bad. And I don't know how people don't understand that. They think that if the Democrats were the only party in an office throughout the country, then everything would be okay. That's not true. That's not true at all. And, you know, homeless populations are out of control. I live right around the corner from one of the worst spots in Los Angeles in terms of of homeless people living under a bridge. Like there is a tent city right outside my place, basically. Um, And it's. You know, obviously the the human toll is is horrible, but to have to be around that is also horrible. And I know obviously that I'm not dealing with what they're dealing with, but I don't want either of us to be dealing with that. And the idea that we can keep throwing money at a problem and keep having the people that we give that money to spending it and not fixing problems and then asking for more money and still not fixing the problems and the solution always keeps being we need more money we need more money we've studied this and it's like okay well whatever you're doing whatever you've studied that told you to do this you are getting bad results and at some point we here have to take responsibility for that and the thing that's stopping us from doing it is the cultural toll the cultural price that we have to pay by speaking out against the people that supposedly have everybody's best interest at heart. The idea that Democrats just automatically have people's best interests at heart is is perplexing to me. I don't understand it at all. And they've still been relying on these same issues. And that's why these issues have gotten more and more ridiculous and more and more extreme over the years. It's, like we said, gay rights, it's abortion, it's immigration, and, uh, and no, then, well, no, you know, well, the abstract that, though, notion of racism. You know, saying that, yes, that is what, you know, and I'm trying to, to be fair here is what we're talking about. These are like kind of the, the core elements of the Democratic Party on the right. You know, you have the core lower taxes, Second Amendment, which I am a big Second Amendment proponent. And that's for, for everyone, um, you know, things like that. So obviously, so obviously the right has their main issues and the left and, I, you know, immigration as well. I think that's one on the right because, you know, Trump's wall and everything. Uh, so. I think those those are the main issues moving forward. So, yes, I agree. We are, are getting to see what it's like to have a majority rule, a supermajority of one party. Mm-hmm. And to the people in California, okay, because most people are going to listen to this probably from Cali. Do you enjoy where you are at right now? Do you like what's going on? Do you like that you have money that comes out, taxes that go to a high-speed train, that originally was supposed to connect Los Angeles to San Francisco. And now it only connects like Bakersfield and Merced. I think it is. That's it. That's what the bullet train, your money is going to connect Bakersfield to Merced. Billions, Ooh, that's good. billions and billions tens of billions of dollars. And I remember before all this started, there was an article that was talking about how Newsom was angry at Trump because Trump, the Trump administration denied a new loan that went forward to the, uh, high-speed rail project and California was mad. Well, you can't get mad. You, California went to the government and said, hey, government, can you help us with some low-interest loans, maybe some grants, because we want to connect two of the greatest cities in America, 
Los Angeles and San Francisco, we want to connect it with a bullet train. How's that sound, national government? Well, government says, here, take a couple billion dollars. And then you're going to go back to the government and say, by the way, we're actually just going to connect Bakersfield and Merced. Can we have our billions of dollars? And the government says no. And then the media paints Trump as the bad guy, you know, is against California. No, California is against itself. Mm-hmm. Okay? It is against itself. This California, specifically Los Angeles, is supposed to be the land of the American dream. Okay? Where anything is possible, as long as you're not afraid of hard work, you can come in from anywhere in the United States and you can make a living and you can get big. Okay? But now, specifically in the city of Angels, the government won't let you work. Yeah. The people of Los Angeles are basically hostages to, to, to Garcetti. He's like a little tyrant. Okay? And yes, you can say that Californians, especially the people in Los Angeles, deserve the government they voted for. Okay? Mm-hmm. You can argue that. But millions of people live in Los Angeles, and they are decent, hardworking, freedom-loving Americans that are basically just trying to make a living. Sure. They're paying their taxes. They're voting. They're raising their families. They're not committing crimes. They are good, decent Americans. Now, I say this as as someone that's from Georgia, a Southerner. Um, There is a negative view of liberal California, the left coast. Sure. But Californians are just like you. They're working hard. They're trying to raise a family. There's a lot of conservatives here as well. Now, you don't see that many because most of the conservatives, you actually come out as conservative, especially in Hollywood. You're not going to work anymore. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the the people need to ask themselves, do I really like the type of government that I'm getting right now from the local and from the state level? And I think most people are realizing that government is far too intrusive in their daily lives. They have way too much control. I it's yeah, I mean, it's amazing to me. I'm not sure what. uh real advances our political system in California has given us. You know, we have these ballot initiatives that basically take all the responsibility off of our elected representatives to actually govern and then shift it to a direct democratic vote. And then all those where most people are not educated on the issue. Exactly. Exactly. All those issues get filtered through um, all the social and cultural narratives where you know, the the final ballot appears or the final, uh, you know, the summary of the bill appears on the ballot and it says, well, we're going to take money from this to fix the homeless problem. And it's like 25 cents on every dollar uh, or on every dollar of sales tax collected or something or 25 cents per hundred dollars spent, whatever it is, that's going to go to fix the homeless problem. And then the homeless problem gets worse, which means that we have all voted to give up more money to a problem that hasn't gotten fixed. And it's so easy to then take that cultural problem and say, well, if you don't vote for this thing, then you're being anti-homeless. And it's like, what? What do you mean? You're telling me that I have to give my money and keep throwing my money into a pit when these problems don't get fixed. And if that upsets me, then I'm anti-homeless? That doesn't make any sense. Clearly, the solutions are not the correct solutions because they're not solving anything. For something just to be a solution, it has to solve something. And I don't, I don't, I don't see those things happening. And it's, 
I, I think that the media and um, Democrats right now are, are literally creating new Republicans. And uh, man, I don't know. Like that was when I started talking about these things, my intention was never to push people away from the Democratic Party and especially not to push them towards Trump. But at the same time, I do want people to take responsibility for their own political and moral thinking and then act accordingly. And whatever the uh, whatever the results are, you should be. We should be basing our decisions off those because if we keep getting bad results and then we keep incentivizing these bad results by by us just being totally willing to say, oh, you said you're helping the homeless. I believe you. That's that's not how responsible adults act. I don't I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, whatever. No, look, and <laughs> go, going in, uh, to Newsom, I mean, what's, been, what's actually been reported by the L.A. Times, I think, in the past two weeks was. He unilaterally, unilaterally got a uh, like billion dollar contract for like PPE, protective protect. Uh, what is it? Personal protective equipment for the uh, healthcare workers. Those are those are contracts large enough that are supposed to be sent out to be bid on. Sure. Newsom basically just negotiated and cut the check and sent it. Which and of course you can do that and tell out- people that it's because we have this urgent crisis and this is just what we need to do. Yeah. It's outrageous. And the the problem is, you know, look at Los, like California as a whole, 40 million people. OK, right. What, what's L.A. now? The main area like county 12, is 10 million and the city 10, is 10 million. OK, right. So basically, L.A. County has basically the largest population, I believe. And in that area, there was like twenty five thousand beds that are available for like hospitals, or whatever. They never even came close to 10% capacity. Right. Okay. And now they're saying that unemployment is anywhere between 28 to 40%. Yeah. In I saw Angeles. 28 yesterday. It ha- so it has to be at least that. Okay. Now, and we're going back to the numbers earlier. California has 40 million people. Okay. And we have 10 million in the LA area. We're only looking at 3,200 deaths, I think, as of yesterday. Now, New York, the city of New York, has 14,000 deaths. Now, that's because a lot of bad decisions by de Blasio and Cuomo, but it's also because they're stacked on top of each other in New York City and people are riding the subways and it took the city government three months to finally start completely disinfecting all the subway trains. Three months after COVID-19 hit, that's when they started disinfecting the trains. Okay, So yes, there's a difference between numbers between what's going on in New York and what's going on in California. And therefore, California should not apply the same policies that New York is applying at all. It doesn't fit. And it's funny because, you know, the the other side of this debate was promoting a national lockdown, um, including Anthony Fauci, by the way. He said it on CNN, which, you know, my problem with that is that that takes away our political leaders ability to actually implement the policy they want to implement because now we have you know the oracle dr fauci telling us exactly what the proper prescription is with no attention paid to the downside and now you know my friend who was on uh, my friend charles galanis who's a a doctor was he, he presented the counterpoint to that which i am fine with um and that's that you know that's fauci's prescription and he's looking at that only from the medical point of view. It's not his responsibility to weigh the downsides, um, you know, economically, politically, whatever. Fine. But when you say your 
uh, prescription on national television, then you have tied the hands of the people that are supposed to be making that decision. And I have a real problem with that. And it's also odd to me that we're talking about the same set of people who absolutely hate Donald Trump, and now they want to empower him with a national lockdown. And so let's play that out. If if Donald Trump had declared a national lockdown like they all wanted, like they thought was prudent at the time, then it would be on Donald Trump to declare the national lockdown over. And so is that the freedom that they want to? Is that what they is that what they wanted? Is that the position they want to put themselves in when they say that Donald Trump should enact a national lockdown? I don't think it is. And so why don't you have the responsibility to have the same thought process before you you know, go up in arms about this being the right decision. That part to me is infuriating. And so now we have Gavin Newsom who did take the responsible decision, right? And when does he say we're done? Never. You know, when does this happen? Because we are in a situation where if Gavin Newsom says that this is over earlier than people are, you know, culturally ready for it, then he looks like a fool. You know, because the the problem never happened on the scale that he said it would and that he believed it would. And again, that's not all his fault. He was working under the uh, information he had. But how as a politician do you say I've got I got the biggest decision that I was ever tasked with completely wrong, but I was just going by the best data. Now, that's an excuse right there. That is an impermeable, impenetrable excuse that you can say you are going by the data and that you know half of your population will take that seriously and say, yeah, you know, well, Gavin was just going by the data. So, well, we can't really fault him for that. And it's like, no, there's not one set of data. There's not one set of data. There are other sets of data. And if he was going by those and taking those into account as culturally difficult as that would have been in our media and our entertainment and our you know, Silicon Valley environment, he would have made a different decision, but he wasn't. He was working on the one set of data, the public set, the one that was repeated over and over again to people. And now we are stuck under these obviously wrong models and we have no means of getting out where our leaders can still save face. And that is a terrible, terrible position to be in. They, you're right. They moved the goalposts, as we said earlier. Yep. When did flattening the curve? That was the whole reason for exactly. all the lockdown was to lower the curve, not find a cure, not eliminate the virus, not wait till the vaccine. Not it was lowering that. the curve. Guess what, America? We lowered the curve. Congratulations, you won. Everybody gets a medal. Okay? Mm-hmm. We'll make it look like a little piece of toilet paper to commemorate the, <laughs> the season. All right, I'm going to make those. Everybody's going to get one. Okay, because look, we did what we set out to do. We kept the hospital system from being overwhelmed. As soon as that virus left China, sometime in November and December, as soon as it left, it was too late. Mm-hmm. It was too late by then. Okay, it was going to be here. And yes, we didn't acknowledge that it was here until like mid to January. But I guarantee you that thing was flying around the United States in planes in December. You know, we, we have a mutual friend, no one say his name, but he got sick in what around February after he got done wrapping that movie. He had a horrible flu, worst flu he's ever had. Said so lasting like nine days. Okay. And then he goes and gets an antibody test like two or three weeks ago. And oh by the way, yeah, you've already had it. He had coronavirus in LA in like end of January, early February. You know, so I mean, this thing had been spreading around all over the place, and that you know, the 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 Chinese 
are the ones to blame because they didn't lock down fast enough. That's that's what it comes down to. But you know, getting getting to what you're talking about with how different states, different municipalities have uh, implemented different policies. I, at some point, I think it does come into politics and how many numbers we can uh, lay at Trump's feet during the election. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's what it comes to, and that's why you saw um, the media going after Florida so much, you know, with DeSantis and oh, he hasn't closed the beaches yet and stuff like no that. No one, no one in the country has handled this situation better than Ron DeSantis. I mean, I don't know how anybody could even make the argument at this point that he was acting irresponsibly. His state is in the best position to rebound from this. Twice there were national horrors over people being on the beaches in Florida, and twice nothing has come of them. Like, what world do we have to live in where we can still stick to Ron DeSantis is the bad guy and, and Andrew Cuomo is the good guy? That makes no sense. If that is what you take from this situation... Like you're a stupid person, you know, that it, it, at some point, the things in your life have to matter beyond the theories that you have convinced yourself are true. And that's, that's where I'm at in this whole thing. I and think, then, yeah, go ahead. I think it's, you know, well, I agree. It could be a level of stupidity. I, just, I think, I, it, I mean, I'm not saying that they're actually, no, stupid no, I, but I, no, I'm but that, they're believing something very stupid. It's, it's naive. And I think it's. We forget how important the filter of bias is in our daily lives, how we see the world, how we perceive news, how we uh, perceive other people, how they speak, everything like that. That bias filter, okay, can get people to believe some of the wildest things. And I think that's where we're at with this. And by the way, that's true for Trump supporters as well. They believe some fucking insane things. Yeah, I, know, I have a couple friends that are like that. Yeah. God bless them. But, you know, it does, going back to policy over personality, I'll just leave it there. Uh, um, but, you know, where we are in California and Los Angeles, the, the takeaway that everyone that's listening to this needs to know, the data does not merit continued lockdowns. That's it. I don't care what some friend tells you that you know their two doctor family members said that we need to continue to lockdowns it's not about getting cases to zero it's about mitigating risk we have to factor in the economic issues because we're fastly approaching a point where the economic deaths and yes there will be deaths because of a great depression suicides uh, just general mental health physical health poverty increases deaths We could create an economic depression that results in more deaths than the actual virus. Okay, so that is a guaranteed to happen at this point. It is. We're basically in depression level data. Mm -hmm. Um, People are the stock market and everyone is just waiting to see how fast they think the recovery could be, because if we do get everything opened up and everything comes roaring back and we have 10, 15 percent unemployment this this quarter and next quarter, it's down to like nine then people are going to say, okay, we're recovering. It's quick. It was a sharp depression. Maybe not. Maybe they won't even call it that. Um, but we are there, okay? And with being there, we have to take into account those economic data points and fit that in with the health data, point, data points, okay? And I believe that municipalities need to be able to open up if they want to. And that's why you're seeing, you know, states open up. You're seeing... 
Florida's governor, DeSantis, saying if you want to open up, you can open up with these guidelines. But harder hit cities like the Miami area are choosing to stay closed or at least limit, um, you know, s- some of the restrictions uh, as opposed to the ones that are you know going on in California. Uh, so, you know, it's federalism at work, people. Not everything is centrally administered from Washington, D.C. down. States have rights. Cities, townships have rights. Counties have rights. Okay, that's what we're dealing with. One shoe does not fit all. What's good for New York is not what's good for Atlanta, Georgia, or Topeka, Kansas, or Los Angeles, California. Okay? So one thing I've been saying, um, God, for four or five, six weeks now, um, I I had a bunch of conversations kind of offline but I, I really, truly believe, and this is one of the reasons why I've been screaming about this stuff for six weeks now, is that there is a possibility, a non-zero possibility, that we have completely overestimated the scope of this disease, that there will not be a spike in the summer or the fall, and that if there, you know, there's going to be flare-ups. I am totally fine admitting that. But if there is not a big spike, then we get to a situation where... The economy has been ruined and Trump is not going to take the blame for that. Now, I would have preferred if Trump had a better constitution that he could have said, I know everybody's scared right now, but this step is not the right step. And then, you know, said flat out, I'm sorry, I know what everybody thinks. I don't believe that lockdowns are the best uh, the best policy right now. But Trump's made it pretty clear he didn't want to lock down. And he said it in national interviews multiple times. So if the lockdown ends up inflicting what we know it is inflicting and the disease never does. And by the way, this fits completely in line with what I was talking about with China. If what we had was a super spreader event and that's what caused the spike and not just the the presence of the disease causing all of that, then we're in a situation where. Everybody who's anti-Trump forced the lockdowns, which has undoubtedly inflicted all this pain. If that spike doesn't occur, people are going to look at the media and at Democrats and say, wow, you got the most important issue of our entire lives dead wrong. And that is going to like people believe there's no opportunity for a Trump landslide here. I believe there is. Now, I wish that there was a more responsible Republican running against Donald Trump. I wish we had somebody like Ben Sass out there, you know, or Nikki Haley. I wish we had a genuine Give conversation. Me the first, first female president right there. I think she probably will I'm be in there right now. Yep. Um, I would too. Uh, but I don't understand that they don't see that. They, they, it's like they don't see any downside costs. And that's what happens when you are so blinkered that the only thing you care about is whether or not Donald Trump is president for longer. And everything that we see happening has been directly or indirectly a result of that. Um, so, so I know we're running super long. Let me, um, let me ask you one more kind of more fun thing at the end of this and get your perspective on this, and then we can wrap it up. So tell me what you think of Space Force. <laughs> I think the show on Netflix is going to be hilarious. Okay? <laughs> but here's all right, here's the thing. For since the end, well since World War 1, okay? There's been three dimensions of warfare. Okay? 
there's been the sea and I, you know, ships on the ocean, below the ocean, soldiers and Marines on the ground, in the dirt, and then the air, aircraft, whether it was, you know, dirigibles or biplanes or whatever. We dealt with that for basically up until the space race really took off. Okay. And I'll, I'll put it around like the mid sixties. Then came space, the fourth layer. All right. And it changed everything from a reconnaissance standpoint. You could no longer have the troop buildups like uh, the Germans did before they invaded the Soviet Union because the opposing country probably has a spy satellite looking at their borders. Right. So warfare changed. Right. And space just became so large in terms of the capabilities that we can do in it that it needed to have its own branch off. Take, take the Marine Corps and the Army. Do similar similar missions. We're both ground pounders. We both uh, destroy the enemy on land and take and hold territory. Uh, but the Marines have that specialized mission of the amphibious warfare, ship to shore. Okay, I, we, It doesn't matter where your defenses are. We're going to poke a hole. Okay, And by the way, we're going to do it with our boats and we're going to land all these guys and they're going to take your, your territory over. Very specialized. So that's why the... So the Marine Corps does not to be part of the Army. Never should be, never will be. So the Air Force needed to basically split off the space operations into its own dedicated uh, force because it also came into play with budgets. Um, the Air Force was focusing on, you know, aircraft. New, you know, new F-22s, new F-35s, which is a boondoggle. Uh, we can talk about that in another <laughs> uh, another one, the, the military-industrial complex. And, yeah. and how, I would how actually like to – dude, we should do that soon, do the uh, military-industrial complex and then Second Amendment stuff. I would love to do that. Oh, I would have – I. Uh, how many people can we have on here at one time? Uh, I, can, I can do some more. Okay, because I have a friend from law school in Alabama, Matt LaRossier. He's with, like, the Firearms Policy Institute. And he is the best when it comes to Second Amendment. He is suing everybody. Like, he sued the Attorney General of California and all this stuff. Like, they are just going after and, like, you know, helping people defend their rights. It's amazing. He'd be a better guest with Second Amendment than me, but I'll put you guys in touch. Um, where, we, where were we going on that? I, I was off uh, Space Force. Oh, Space Force. That's right. Um, so it was just time to have that, given, given the buzz, because the Air Force was always focusing on you know, new aircraft rather than expanding the, the space role of the Air Force. Uh, it's just like the Department of Navy has the Navy and the Marine Corps under the Department of the Navy. So now the Air Force has the Air Force and the Space Force under the Department of the Air Force. Um, so not much is really going to change. They're obviously going to take a lot of the, the culture uh, uniforms, um, you know, and how they carry out their day-to-day -day operations, you know, inspiration from the Air Force. It's going to be a while before they kind of identify their own uh, culture. Uh, but I think it was a good move, and it was a long one coming. And now, me personally, as being someone that fought on the ground, and I know there's international treaties that banned this from back during the Cold War days about weaponizing space. But look, as someone on the ground, if you can do it, I want orbital bombardment. Okay, I want to be able to uh, call for fire instead of artillery or an airstrike. I want something to come out of space and hit the enemy. Give me that. Okay, and then I'll be really proud of the Space Force. Now, as I said, there's all these international treaties that get in the way with stuff like that. But there's workarounds. And that is something that would change warfare and give us an advantage over the Chinese. And I'm sure the Chinese and Russians are looking at as well. 
So there, this isn't only a uh, kind of futuristic fly around and blow spaceships up kind of thing. Now, we have people in our country who believe that within the next decade that we could be mining asteroids for resources. And that should be something that makes everybody happy. Of course, it wouldn't be. But I view space, and tell me if I'm completely crazy about this, I view space as basically one big, vast ocean. And where we used to have naval battles, now we will have space battles. These are going to be trade routes from Earth to space. And those trade routes have to be protected, just like our trade routes around the world have to be protected right now. And I mean, I, we didn't really get to the South China Sea, but maybe you can weave those two things together. Am um, I totally off base, like thinking about thinking about outer space trade routes? No, I, I think that's, look, we're headed towards space. It's That's why I'm such a huge fan of Elon Musk, because he's so forward thinking with this. Like, he was just on Joe Rogan the other day talking about how he's going to get rid of all his physical possessions because it distracts him from his mission of getting us to Mars. Okay, who <laughs> says that? That's a I billionaire. Awesome. Okay, I love the guy. Um, the future of the human race is in space. Mm-hmm. That's they were saying they were saying it in the sixties lead up to Apollo. Um, but it is true. We do have to take to the stars. And with that, there's always going to be the challenges, as you say, said of uh, protecting people going to and coming from the reason that the world has the global economy that we have is because global trade is safe and secure. What gives it that security? The United States Navy. Okay. Guarantees free seas around the world. That's just the way it is. The might of the United States military allows us to have the global economy that we have. Now, and allows to maintain the American world order, which, by the way, people can be mad at that, but I've never understood why they would prefer the Chinese Communist Party to have that. Well, that's that comes down to what's a much longer conversation. What, what, yeah, what century do you want? And I'll just leave it as the United States is the leader of the free world, whether we like it or not. Okay, so therefore we have a responsibility. And I say that as someone that I hate. I'm not an interventionist. Okay, I'm not about going into places unless there's clear cut American defined goals and and a benefit to the United States. Um, An exit strategy. And an exit strategy. That's always the big one. Um, But, you know, so bringing it back into like, you know, space and and the militarization and, and, and things like that, I think it's inevitable. We're, whether we do it, the Chinese, the Russians, somebody else is going to do it. So might as well get into the game. And I'm sure we have secret stuff. I mean, the Air Force has that X-37. I think that's the designator of the space plane that was up there for years. I think they just launched it or they were going to launch it the other day. So it's it's a mini space shuttle. and Nobody knows what it does. <laughs> nobody knows what it does. It's just up there doing doing space shit. That, that's... You know, whatever the whatever the Air Force and the Space Force was doing with it, I don't know. They were figuring out can they they latch onto enemy satellites or take satellites out or so. I'm sure we have that technology there. But moving forward, we are going to have some type of warfare that takes place in the space, whether it's the, the destruction of enemy satellites through missiles or you know things like that. Uh, it's going to happen at some point because that's where we're headed. The human race is headed out into the stars. Mm. You know, and we're led by a couple billionaires, <laughs> Be- Bezos and, and and Musk. So thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. OK, so wait, let me wrap up with with this. What do you th- do you have? Uh, do you have a prediction about where we'll be with China in, say, 
three months, six months, a year, 10 years? Like, what do you see the future being? I, I hope it's like what it was with the Soviet Union and the Cold War where we're adversaries, but the Cold War never turns hot. Yeah. But I don't know. Right now we're going into a crisis where this is the first time, I think, in 20, 25 years the Chinese economy is constricted. Mm-hmm. Okay. They need growth to fuel everything that they're doing. So we don't know what it's going to be like when China goes in the negative. Okay. So short term, it all comes down to what the Chinese moves are. Mm-hmm. You know, when this first happened, one of the first thoughts I had was, well, they knew their economy was going down, going in the negative. So maybe they didn't contain the virus as hard as they could have because they're like, look, we're going down. Might as well take the global economy down. Now, yes, is that a conspiracy theory? 100%. Anybody listening to this, don't go and say, I heard that Mike say this, so therefore it is. <laughs> this, this is a complete hypothetical. But ask yourself, if you're a communist country with a big economy, and for the first time in 25 years, your economy is going to get smaller and mess up everything, and you have an opportunity to save the rest of the world from this virus, are you really going to do it? Are you really going to put forth 100% or are you going to put forth like 70 and maybe 30% gets passed? Because I think that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. We already went through what I thought that happened. Sure. Was, you know, sure. escape from the lab. But, you know, when you get Wuhan getting closed down in terms of travel from the rest of China before the international airport shuts down, it raises questions. Yeah. The, the travel was cut off within China, but not, out, not, to, not from China to the rest of the world. Exactly. All you really need to know. Yes. Um, all right, man. This has been great. Uh, we will do it again soon for sure. Uh, right. Is there any place online where people can find more stuff or follow you on? Are you are you a Twitter guy or anything like I'm that? I'm not a Twitter guy. Actually, I think I've been on since it first started. I only go there to get like breaking news. So I only have yeah. like 600 followers and I don't actually tweet anything. Um, so I'd be a very boring follow. Um, I do most of my, I do most of my stuff on Instagram and, uh, it's pretty simple. It's captain Mike K. So how you spell captain Mike and then K, uh, give it a follow. I give, uh, I do, I'm like you, I'm pretty active in the stories. Um, give you my opinion on things that are updating. I have friends, they, their only source of news is my is my instagram story feed so that's a big uh, responsibility man. that is it is a big responsibility and i know what they need <laughs> awesome all right brother well i will uh talk to you soon and i'm sure that we'll be discussing uh, a lot of this stuff offline over the next few weeks and then we'll do this again uh, thanks brother all right man i'll talk to you soon bye-bye all right. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and give it a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so new listeners can take your word for it. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at I'm Your Moderator. If you have feedback, you can email heymoderator at imyourmoderator.com or use the hashtag heymoderator on Twitter. If you'd like to support the show, search Be Reasonable on Patreon where I'll have additional daily ish segments in a special podcast feed of the show as well as my writing and audio readings of those articles you can also go to anchor.fm slash be reasonable and become a supporter there thank you so much for listening until next time i'm your moderator chris paul be reasonable Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast.
In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!